Father. Matt Brown is up here. Matt is a dear friend of mine. His wife, Cheryl, is with him. Um, and Matt's going to preach this morning. And Matt and I served together for a number of years, been friends for a long time. We we're part of a church plant team. Matt was the lead pastor of Redemption Church in Loveland, Colorado. And when Haley and I uh, went back to Colorado for a couple of years, we were part of the pastoral team to serve with Matt. So Matt's going to open the word with us this morning. And it's going to be a sweet blessing. He's a sweet brother. So just when you know when Matt gets up, who he is, so you're not thrown off by that. It's like, man, did Matt Moorhead change? Like square rim glasses all of a sudden? Like what's going on? So you have some context for who he is, but love you, man. Thanks for serving us this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what amazing reminders you've given us this morning through these songs. God, that you came. You came when we were wandering and lost and aimless and purposeless and hopeless. You entered our plight and our brokenness. And you entered with power and might, and you did for us what we could never do for ourselves. So this morning, Jesus, I pray that your gospel would be fresh in our minds and our hearts, that we would once again behold your glory through your word, that we would all learn a little bit more about you and become more like you as a result. So Holy Spirit, now would you open our eyes to behold your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. All right. You guys, a little crowd participation here already. I love it. Uh, I am extremely excited to be here. Uh, again, last night was a huge joy for us, and the Moorheads are just a dear, precious family to us, as they are to many of you. Uh, but one of the reasons I'm joyful is my dad and mom are watching my children this morning, and he shot me a picture out my front door, and there's about four inches of snow in Colorado. And so uh, I'm going to send him a picture of the beach later today, <laughs> and it's going to be fantastic. Well, the last time Cheryl and I came out here was in 2009, and it was a, with a team from Mountain View Community Church. That was the church that sent this church out here to be a church plant in 2006. And we came out in 2009, and we brought a team with us, and we were on the campus of UNCW. Any UNC dubs in here? Come on. Yeah, make some noise. So we were, we were on that campus just meeting students and, and trying to create awareness for the church and share the gospel. It was just an awesome trip. And Cheryl and I liked this so much, we're like, what, will, what about moving to Wilmington? What would that be like? And uh, so we started praying and processing through that, and we came back in 2010 on a vision trip. And I remember we stayed with Matt and Haley, and we were talking to Taylor a little bit earlier about this, how when we stayed at the Moorhead's house, we stayed in Taylor's room, and we were pregnant with our first daughter at the time. And so we go into Taylor's room, and it's just like pinked out, right? And so here I am, like, is this what is in my future? Like, I'm staying in this, like, girl room. And it just felt weird not having kids yet and whatever. And now we have three girls. And, um, and so I really do think God was preparing my heart through staying in Taylor's room. And uh, I don't know, you were seven or eight at the time, and so I have a seven-year-old, so projecting into the future thinking about my daughter's getting married. It's kind of crazy. Well, um, you know, God has just a funny way of moving in our lives. Many times we think we understand his plan and his path, but he often does things that we don't expect. 
And when we came out in 2010, we thought we were going to move here. And we were planning on it. The one, one hurdle was finding a job. And so I started applying for jobs all over the place. And I had one phone interview that did not go well. And everything else was crickets. And we're like, God, what are you doing? And at the same time, the college ministry at Mountain View, where we were currently at, was going through some leadership transition, and the pastors asked if I would consider coming on to take over the college ministry. And at first, it was like, no thanks, we're moving to Wilmington. That was what we thought. Uh, And then uh, over the next few weeks and months, the Lord started to open our heart to that possibility. And so we, uh, we, we ended up diving in there. We were on staff at Mountain View for five years, became part of the pastor team. But that whole time, we had this burden for church planting. We just didn't know where, we didn't know with who, we didn't know when, but we knew it was coming in the future. And uh, then all of a sudden, the Moorheads were back in Colorado, and we kind of like, what, like, what are you doing, guy? Like, all of a sudden, they're like, oh yeah, Matt and Haley are back. I'm like, how did, how did that just happen, right? So we started meeting and praying and processing with them, and God really knit our hearts together along with another couple, the Valderramas, to, to plant a church in Loveland, which was about 15 minutes south of Fort Collins. And it was just so cool to see how God uh, did the unexpected in that time and brought us together to birth that church. And unknown to us, uh, God would have the, the Moorheads on loan to us for about a year because it was a year into the church plant when uh, God opened the door for them to come back here. And so we want to thank you publicly for your uh, loan and pastoral leadership for those two years. And I also just want to say honestly that I don't think we would have planted redemption without the Moorheads. And so there is a church of about 300 people in Loveland, Colorado right now, downtown in the heart of the city, because the Moorheads came out to Colorado for two years. And so that's significant. Uh, And you guys were a part of that. Even if you don't know anybody there, you're a part of, of making that happen. And so thank you. Well, we were in Loveland for five years, and I, uh, we found we have this kind of five-year rotation on our life, which is, I don't know, every five years there's just some massive change. And we are currently now down in Denver, Colorado, at Applewood Baptist Church, where I serve on the pastor team there, and we're helping revitalize this 60-year-old Southern Baptist church to reach the next generation, to raise up disciples and leaders, and to reproduce ourselves through planting churches. And God is doing something incredible in Denver right now. Since January of last year, we've celebrated over 70 baptisms. And I really believe that God is positioning us to be a church planting hub uh, to send people out all over the city. Let me give you some quick stats on Denver and entice you to come out. The 14th most post-Christian church in America, 7% would claim to be evangelical Christians, and 80, or sorry, not 83, 38% of the population has never been to church in their life. In their life. Like, does that blow your mind? We're in the South. Like, everyone's at least been to church down here, right? Like, that's 100% of the population. It's 38% has never walked into the doors of a church. It's pretty incredible. So the need is great, uh, but we see God's hand moving, and it's a joy just to continue to be a part of where he leads and what he is up to. So 
We're going to continue our study through 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles, you can open there. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. As you guys know, Peter is writing to these elect exiles of the dispersion. That's how the book opens. And for all of us Americans, we're like, what in the world does that mean? And so to translate that into modern language is like, Peter is writing the churches who've been scattered all throughout Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And the recipients of this letter are suffering from persecution. They're not welcomed in the world that they find themselves in, and they might be feeling like they're insignificant people scattered throughout these insignificant places. But as we're going to see today, Peter is wanting to reaffirm in their hearts God's purpose for them in the world. And he wants to remind them that they are actually central to God's purpose and what he is doing So last week, you guys were in 1 Peter chapter 2, the first couple verses, you saw this contrast between the world, which is full of malice, is full of deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and then on the flip side, the church, which is to long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word of God, to know Christ and to be conformed by Him, by coming to Him, by hearing from Him, allowing Him to speak to us and transform us to long for those things that are true and right and good. And this week we're going to see Peter uh, encourage these believers in the midst of the suffering and sojourning to to stay true to Jesus because he is in the process of building and expanding his kingdom through his church. And if you're a note taker, I don't know if we have it on the overhead here, but the main idea I want you to think about and walk away with is this, is that Jesus is building us, his church, into spiritual houses that reflect him all throughout the world. That's what he's up to. That's what he is doing. That's how the hope of the gospel is going forth. So let's read 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 4 together. It says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of st- and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right, so we see this passage start with these few words that are significant. As you come to him... There is in a sin that Peter makes as he's writing to this church, these churches that they are coming to Jesus on a regular basis. This is just the normal pattern of what it means to be a Christian is we come to Jesus. We know the Son of God. We come to him. 
And last week you saw that this means that you have a steady diet of God's Word. We don't have to guess what God wants from us. We don't have to guess what God is like. He has told us what He is like. He has told us what He desires. We don't have to go around in life just wondering, like, oh, man, is this what God wants? Is this not what He's told us. He's spoken. And as we come to Him, He reminds us of those things. And we, in, in exchange of that, experience the abundant life that Jesus promised and the point I want to encourage us all with, and maybe uh, for all of us this is the most important point, is that we must continually come to Jesus, the cornerstone. It's that simple. If you're a Christian, your life should be defined by coming to Jesus on a regular basis. You might be sitting here and thinking to yourself, but well, who is this Jesus? Peter goes on to share. He says that, he is a living stone that was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Over 2,000 years ago, when Jesus walked to this earth, he, he did powerful, miraculous signs during his ministry. He, he was giving proof that he was divine. He was from heaven, and he came to bring good into this world, but he came with a message of salvation. And as a living stone, Jesus himself claimed to be the Messiah the Son of God, the Savior of the world who came to redeem mankind back to our Creator God. And the prophet Isaiah, about 700 years prior to Jesus' arrival, said these words in Isaiah 53, 3-5, says, He, referring to the Messiah, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed." You know what that tells us is that Jesus' rejection by men he came to save was not an accident. His rejection was not purposeless. His death on a cross actually accomplished something for us. It was a part of God's plan. And I don't know where everyone in this room is at. I don't know what you believe. I don't know what your background is. But I think we would all come to agreement upon the fact that we live in a broken world. If you agree with that, nod your head, okay? Do we live in a broken world, okay? You don't have to look far, right? We just talked about war being raged in Ukraine. There's racism, there's poverty, there's greed, there's all sorts of things that we look around and we're just like, man, this place, it's not paradise. This place is broken. And then you have to transition, you have to ask, ask the question, Why? Why? Why is this world broken? And that's when we have to look in the mirror. You know, it's real easy for us to, you know, say, oh, Putin's the devil or whatever, you know, these super bad people and compare ourselves like, man, comparatively, I'm pretty good. But then we look in the mirror and we realize, wow, I'm broken. I struggle. 
I do things, I say things that I know are not right, that I know are not good. And what do I do with that? How do I process that? Because that means I'm part of the problem. And I'm contributing to the problem of the brokenness in this world. And it's true. And the reality is that every person in this room was born with a deep spiritual problem, a spiritual disease called a sin nature. And that nature has made us separated from God. It has broken our relationship with God, the only place where wholeness can be found. And the very reason Jesus came into the world to be rejected and to be condemned by men was to provide a solution to our spiritual problem, to make a bridge back to the God who created us so that we could experience the life we were intended to experience. This is why Jesus came, and through his death, he conquered the power of sin, and he also conquered the power of death. Jesus' rejection purchased our redemption. Think about that. His rejection purchased our redemption. That's why he died on a cross, bearing the penalty that you and I sin deserved so that we could be spiritually healed, so that we could have peace with God. He willfully suffered so that we could be saved. But as many of you know, and as we just sung, Jesus didn't stay in the grave, did he? And as our passage says, he's a what? A what kind of stone? A living stone. He's alive. He conquered death. He reigns on the throne of heaven right now at this very moment. This is what verse 6 says. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. Jesus is this living cornerstone, and it's an interesting uh, analogy here because architecturally a cornerstone is the first stone laid for any building project in ancient architecture. They would put down the cornerstone, and this cornerstone had multiple functions to it. Okay, first of all, it functioned as the foundation of the building through which all the other stones were oriented, okay? But it was also strategically placed to show the very purpose of the building itself. It had this profound function. It's like, if I know where the cornerstone at is, I know what this building is about. I know how it's oriented. I know what this thing is built upon. And here, Peter is saying, Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. He is the one through which is the foundation of the church. He is the one that orients everything we do as a church. Everything is built upon him. And we see that it says that he is the promised cornerstone of Zion. If you're familiar with the Old Testament and New Testament, Zion uh, has been referenced to multiple things. First, it, it's the mountain in Israel where the Temple Mount stood. That was considered Mount Zion, the place where God's presence dwelt amongst God's people. But there's not a temple anymore. 
And now the church metaphorically is Mount Zion. Everywhere God's people are gathered together, presence is there. God's presence is with his people. We are a metaphorical Mount Zion right here, right now, as we're declaring the praises of our God. But Mount Zion is also a future mountain where all believers of all time will gather and our faith will be made sight. We will see our king on the throne and we will joyfully worship him. And it says in the text that all who believe in him won't be put to shame. All who believe in him will be honored All who believe in him will be a part of that great choir on Mount Zion singing the praises of our king. But the scripture also tells us that Jesus as this stone will be a stumbling block to many. Many will continue to reject him as was foretold in Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8. This is for those who hear the good news of the gospel, hear that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came and lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, rose the third day from the grave. They hear that and they say, no, not true. No, not for me. The stumbling is disbelief. And the offense is not trusting the good creator God who held out his hand, giving salvation to anyone who would take it. See, there's only two options when it comes to Jesus. There's no neutral ground. You either receive him as the living stone, or you reject him, and he becomes a stone of offense and a stone of stumbling. And I want everyone just to take a moment now to ask the question, who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? When you read through this, you're like, yes, he's my cornerstone. He is the living stone through whom I have life. Or you're like, meh, I don't know what I think about all this Jesus stuff. The reality is, is that you either receive him or you reject him. And I would plead with you today, if you haven't received him, to consider the gospel and to put your faith in the only one who can save your soul. Well, for those of us who have received him, faith isn't just this one-time thing. It's not like, oh yeah, I put my faith in Jesus, I prayed a prayer and got my get-out-of-hell-free card in my back pocket, so I'm good to go, right? We saw in, in, in verse four, it says, as you come to him, this is an ongoing relationship. This is drinking deeply of his word, enjoying this renewed relationship with God and building your life upon him. And as we do that, he does something in us. That's what verse 5 says. It says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up in a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ this morning, you are one of these living stones. You are spiritually alive. You are part of a spiritual house built upon the spiritual rock. You know what that means? That means you're significant. 
That means you have a purpose. That means your life is not aimless or insignificant. You're part of God's family. You're part of his house. This is a huge deal, and this is why, second point, is that we must continually stay connected to one another as, as different parts of the church. We need one another. God is building us together into something. Look at these identity statements in verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Peter is calling this church these crazy statements. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are God's people. Like how many are like, that's me, yes and amen. You feeling that this morning? Some of you should. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you should, even if that language is a little weird and it sounds a little crazy to us. But one thing I want to point out from this text is this. It's actually meant to draw our attention back to Exodus chapter 19. And if you're familiar with Exodus, it's the story of God's people being in slavery in Egypt under harsh affliction for 400 years, and God raises up a man named Moses to go back to deliver the people out of slavery. And they're in bondage, and God delivers them through a mighty hand and outstretched arm, and he judges Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He brings his people. They're on the way to the promised land, and they stop at Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is where God shows up with thunder and lightning and cloud and fire, and the people are trembling. God is showing them that he is the all-powerful, holy, awesome God but that they will be his people. And the law on Mount Sinai, he gives them the instructions for how they are supposed to live there. And Israel, again, as they've been freed now from slavery, this is what God says to them in verse 5 and 6 of Exodus 19. It says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commands, my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all people, For all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Sound familiar? God's people will be set apart because they follow God's voice, because they heed God's commands, because they see them as right and good and true, and they realize that they, as God's people, are meant to be a representation and a reflection of him to the world that desperately needs him. God wasn't just saying, hey, Israel, I'm going to make you my special people, and then, like, that's it. Like, you'll just be my, my people. He told Abraham that he would bless him and make him a great nation to be a what? to be a blessing. I'm going to make you stick out and distinct so that you'll be a blessing to all nations. My heart is for people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Israel, it's not just about you. Yes, I'm going to use you, and I love you, and I'm for you, but it's not about just you. This is much bigger than you. 
And as we've seen through history, Israel failed to live up to their calling. But God still was faithful to his promise to send the Messiah through Israel, Jesus Christ. And Peter is now using this language of this holy race and kingdom of priests and all these things to describe every follower of Jesus Christ. This is what God declares. He says that if you are a part of his church, this is who you are. You're a spiritual race. You're a holy nation set apart unto God. This has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has nothing to do with physical boundaries. This is the global church of Jesus scattered all throughout the world that is meant to make a difference. See, we were all, like Israel in a sense, spiritual slaves, and we've been set free through Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed on the cross. And now if you're a follower of Jesus, he is in the process of building us into something, making us a countercultural community and making these little countercultural communities all throughout the world that reflect his nature and character. Communities that love one another. Communities that bear with one another through thick and thin. Communities that forgive one another, that honor one another, that bring good into the world together. The church is to be a community of joyful, selfless, sacrificial people who are seeking the good of all. That's who we are to be. That's who we're called to be like because that is what Jesus is like. And there's many people, and I'll just say especially in America, that have bought the lie that they can love Jesus and not love the church. Have you heard someone say that before? Well, I love Jesus, but man, that church, whew, she's got problems. And I will all say yes and amen. We got problems? Anybody have problems? No, I won't make you raise your hand. <laughs> but you should. Right? But just because the church can be messy and just because the church has problems, it doesn't mean you can forsake the church. And Jesus is saying that the only way you can be built up into the spiritual house that I intended you to be is if you're actually together. Think of it like us trying to uh, build a house and we're all individual bricks. Okay? And, and only when we come together can we build this structure. But then some of us bricks are like, yeah, I'm just going to go lay in the field. Like, oh, oh, what good is that going to make? It's, 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 you're going to be like an annoying, like stub your toe in the grass, right? Like, no, come together, be built upon one another so that we can function and have a purpose, Every house needs a foundation. Every house needs framing and a structure. Every house needs furnishing. And if you are a part of God's house, you have a purpose and a place within his church. You need the house, and the house needs you. And when we come together, we can be beautiful, and we can be useful for the things of God in this world. Well, twice in the passage, I don't know if you caught it, Peter used the word holy in reference to uh, the priesthood and also to being a holy nation. 
And, you know, we throw that word around a lot, like God is holy. We should be holy as God is holy. And, 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 and it's very, very significant. God is holy. He is other than. He is perfect. He is majestic. He, he's beyond what we can comprehend. But when we think about being holy, we need to think about it as being set apart from the ordinary to something divine. No longer are we just common people walking through this world. We are dedicated people, devoted to someone. And I was thinking about it like this. My, my wife, um, for a couple Father's Days, have, have made me those custom coffee mugs. You know, the ones you can kind of paint pictures on the outside or like print your actual photos on. Does anyone have one of those? Am I the only one? Okay, so I have these two coffee mugs, pictures of my kids, got them for Father's Day. It says, like, you're the best dad in the world, and you're my hero, and I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. But I have these mugs, one at my office and one at my house, and let me ask you, do you think I share those mugs with anybody? Why? They're my mugs. Like, they are dedicated to me. They were special gifts given to me, for me, and for nobody else. These are my children on the mugs. You don't get my mug with my kids on it. I'm sorry. I will get you a generic Starbucks mug out of my cabinet. That is what you get, okay? But this is kind of the idea of what it is to be holy, to be set apart unto God, is we are these vessels set apart to Him for His purposes, we belong to him and no one else. So when it says that we're a holy nation, that, that's what it means, is that we're set apart exclusively unto him for his purposes. And that is a beautiful thing because we are part of his family. And we're called to be dedicated to him. And part of that means we are dedicated to one another. We have a devotion to our God and we have a devotion to his church. And this is what I love so much about church planting, is when you plant a church, it forces anybody who goes to do something. Like, <laughs> you go on a church plant, you can't just come and sit on Sunday and go home. It's like, oh, who's going to do that? I don't know, you are. I don't know, who's going to do that? I don't know, you are. Like, that's just the way it works. And people are doing all sorts of things they never would have done if they would have just come and consumed church and just sat in on Sunday and left. And so as you church plant, it's like, man, we're a band of brothers and sisters just getting after this thing, and we all just got to do our part because there's a lot to do. But you know what else church planting does for the church that sends out those people? It's like taking bricks out of the wall, <laughs> saying, all right, we're going to send all these bricks over here. And then you're like, oh, there's a hole now. Like, there's a breeze coming through over there. Go plug that hole. Who's got it? Hey, Johnny, you haven't been doing anything. Get over there and plug that hole, right? Like... It forces the existing church and people within it to step up and to fill holes in ways that they wouldn't have if those people would have stayed. Church planting is a beautiful picture of us going and reproducing these spiritual houses all throughout the world. And they're never done, are they? You never arrive as a church. It's never like, we're built, we're set, let's go. You're always building, you're always adjusting, and God is doing it all. Here's the other cool thing, is that when we are faithful 
to coming to Jesus on a regular basis, when we are faithful to being a part of his church and playing our part that God has for us, we start to reflect him in a way that the world takes notice. The last point is this, is that we must continually shine Jesus to the world, and it's a progression. We come to Jesus so that we know him, we stay connected to one another, and when we do those things, we shine him to the world around us. It's a beautiful thing. Well, I don't know how many of you would, um, would stand up if I asked all the priests in the room to stand up. Anyone eager to do that? Any priests out there? Well, you're all wrong because you're all priests if you're in Christ. Okay, that's what the text says. Two different times, this is what it says. He says that you are a holy priesthood and that you are a royal priesthood. So you're holy, you're, you're dedicated unto God, and you're royalty. You're a part of the family of the king of kings. You are royalty. This is who you are. And you might have a hard time with that concept. Maybe you have a Catholic background, and you're like, wait, no, priests are like, those super holy dudes up front that wear gowns and do ritualistic things. Like, so you may have a concept of priesthood that's just like, that's really hard for you to swallow, so let me just acknowledge that. But let me try to explain what Peter is getting at when he says we're a royal priesthood. So the priesthood in Israel were, were those who served in the house of God. They were ministers in God's house on behalf of God's people. They're a select group of Israelites, the Levites, who were chosen and consecrated before God for this work. And they would offer sacrifice on behalf of the people, on behalf of their sin. They would intercede on behalf of people and pray for people. The, the priesthood had a kind of priestly mediator kind of role between the people and God. And of the priesthood, there was only one high priest. And within God's temple, there was the holy place, and then there was the holy of holies. And only the high priest could go into the holy of holies, and that but once a year to offer blood sacrifice on the day of atonement, to atone for the nation's sins. This is how the priesthood was set up. And you fast forward to Jesus coming, and we see very clearly in the New Testament that he is the great high priest. He is the only high priest we need. He is the one who entered in the Holy of Holies, not with the blood of goats or the blood of lamb, but with his very own blood, so that now you and I, through his sacrifice, have that direct access to God. We no longer need a priest to stand between us and God. We no longer need else to offer a sacrifice on our behalf because Jesus has done it for us. But something I wanted to point out about the priesthood that just blew my mind this last week is that they dressed a certain way. Okay, the priests, as they would walk around the temple courts and as they were performing their priestly duty, they wore these white garments. And over their garments, they had these things that had jewels on them. There was gold on them. And so you could imagine if someone was walking through this room right now, dressed in all white with bling around their neck, you'd be like, oh, they kind of stand out, right? So they actually kind of sparkle and shine a little bit. Like the way the light hits off that gold, like, man, they're like, that's somebody special. So the priesthood stood out. 
Everyone knew who they were because of this attire. And Peter is saying that now every single follower of Jesus Christ is a royal priest and a holy nation. What does that mean? It means this, that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you are set apart as priests in and to the world. It means that you now have a spiritual role as being a part of the church to be almost a priestly um, mediator, if you will, to people of the world who are yet to know Christ. You know God. You have his presence with you, and now you minister out into the world. And as we do this, guess what? We shine. We shine like the priests. But the way we shine isn't because of the clothes we wear, right? (laughs) You know when the Mormons come knocking on your door? By the way they're dressed, right? That's not how we stand out in the world. We stand out because we have a changed countenance, because we have the light of Christ in our hearts. He has changed us from the inside out. So we're a people that glow with joy. We're a people who are filled with love. And the world sees us and says, yeah, you might not dress weird, but there is something different about you. There's a glow to your life that I can't explain, that I have never seen before. This is how we are a priesthood, church. And remember back in verse 5, it says that as this priesthood, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. I believe that verse 9 explains that. It says this, so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. We are children of light. We are people who have seen the light of Christ. His light is now within us, and we are called to shine it to the world. But guess what? Light can have very different effects. Can it not? When I think of the light in this room, it's like, this is great, right? None of it's like blinding or piercing. It's like, hey, this illuminates. I can see your face. I can see what's going on in the room. I'm not going to trip over the chairs. Like, this is wonderful. This is good, illuminating, helpful light. But my four-year-old son, he likes to turn off all the lights and get out a flashlight. And he goes around the house and he's, you know, goes around his room and his fort and he's looking at all these things. And then when he knows you're with him, he shines that light right in your eyes. Like, oh, get that out of here. Anyone had a flashlight in the eyes? Not a pleasant experience. But that's a different effect that light can have. And I think for us as Christians, just one thing I want to encourage us with is sometimes we can be so eager to shine the light of Christ that we become like those flashlights amongst people who are living in the darkness. And we just go around and we just want to like beat Jesus over people's head and blind them with the light and just, ah, they got to hear about Jesus. And yes, it's true. We need to be faithful to share the gospel. But we can do so in a way that illuminates a room so that we can point to Jesus and put the spotlight on him. And as we do that, people aren't just hearing the good news. They're seeing a life that's been transformed by the good shepherd. And we, therefore, get to be this priesthood and shine and care for the world that desperately needs a Savior. 
Do you realize that our goal is not to convert people to a religion, but to introduce people to a person? Think about it that way, right? Our goal is not to get people to ascribe to a list of doctrine. Our goal is to introduce people to a person so that they can become a part of a spiritual family. Because guess what? Everyone out in the world is a spiritual orphan who desperately needs a home. And that's what Christ came to provide. We don't have the power to make anyone believe, but we know the one who has the power to save. And our job is to continually allow his light to shine through us and for us to shine the spotlight upon him. As we collectively, as the church in our various places continue to come to Jesus, as we continue to stay connected to one another, as we continue to shine the light of Christ in this world, we will see his kingdom come and his will be done. We will. We, we will see his gospel advance and see his kingdom come to bear. And I don't know if you connected the dots, but as I'm reading through this passage, I can't help but think of the words that describe the vision and the mission of this church, which is Christ, community, and commission. And it sounds like this passage is kind of like the exact order of that. As we come to him, Christ, our Savior, our hope, community, being living stones built together into this spiritual house, commission, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Do you see the connection? These are the three, what I believe, non-negotiable intersecting realities of the flourishing Christian life. If you dedicate yourself to these things, you will bear fruit. And it's not because you have what it takes. It's because God will do in you what you could never do in yourself. Sweet. I love that song, yet not I, but through Christ in me. That is our song until we reach the end. But we get to be a part of what he's doing here and now. Well, I'm going to pray specifically towards this end because I think sometimes we can overcomplicate things in life and overcomplicate things even in Christianity. And yet I believe God's laid it out pretty simply for us. And if we would just be faithful to what we know to be true, we'll continue to see the world change for his kingdom. So let me pray. Father, thank you for your word that is our light and our lamp, our guide. Thank you for this time where we get to just meditate on these truths that we are holy not because we are good in and of ourselves, but because we are dedicated unto you. Father, that we are called to be a priesthood that shines brightly in the midst of a dark world. But Father, it all starts with sitting at the feet of Jesus. And I pray and I ask that Crossway Wilmington would be known as a church that faithfully, daily, sits at the feet of Jesus so that they would know, love, and faithfully follow their good and gracious Savior. Father, we need you. We love you. We ask you to continue to build us into the house you want us to be. In Christ's good name, amen.